Scripture reading this morning uh, comes from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. So please hear the word of the Lord this morning. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Fairly early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Then you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning again and welcome again to Trinity Community Church. It's so great to see you. Uh, so great to have that, that member financial update from Pastor Mark. Uh, again, thank you for your, your generosity. It really has just been uh, astounding to see the way the Lord has provided for this church every step of the way. And I don't know about you, but I heard budget surplus. I mean, that was kind of my big takeaway from the whole thing. So, you know, what should we buy? Right? I mean, that's how it works, I think. Sneakers? Matching jackets? Okay, that's why Mark's in charge of the finances. We are so thankful for you and for your generosity, your presence here. Uh, now, a couple of uh, years ago, actually, I was talking with, with Jude, our, our middle son, and if you know Jude, he's, uh, he's kind of our wild one. We have three boys, they're all wild, but Jude especially. And he was showing me all the, the bumps and bruises and scrapes on his legs, and he was complaining about them. And I was like, well, Jude, that's what happens when your hobbies include like jumping off of swings and jumping off of the deck and then building ramps for your bike so that you can jump off of it. Like your legs will always have bruises on them. And he was like, dad, I just want a new body. And I said, well, one day you will get a new body. And he was like, what? I was like, yeah, when Jesus returns, we will all be resurrected and you will have a new imperishable body. And so he said, that's great. You know, do I come back as a baby? I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, we, we're not really sure. Do you want to come back as a baby or as an adult or somewhere in between? And he said, I want to come back as a baby. I think I want to grow up all over again. I was like, all right. That's a good answer. You know, I don't know. I hope somebody takes care of you. It's not going to be me. I'm going to have other things to do when we reach that point, but somebody will take care of you. Um, but I, I loved his, his sense of wonder. You know, it wasn't a struggle for him to, to think about the resurrection. It, it wasn't a struggle for him to think that, uh, that a miracle might happen. You know, kids have this intrinsic sense of wonder. They haven't, they haven't lost it yet. And so the idea of being resurrected with, with a perfect and, and imperishable body and, and, and a, in a redeemed and resurrected world in a, in a new heavens and new earth, that's all just like, great, let's do it. That sounds great. There's, there's no doubt. There's no cynicism. There's no skepticism. But so easily as adults, we lose that sense of wonder, don't we? We, we lose the sense of wonder and enchantment and, and astonishment in the world that we've been placed in. And so as adults, especially as believers, it takes a work for us to, to recapture our sense of wonder. And further, I think if you ask people to summarize 
Christian belief, they would probably say two things. First of all, that Jesus died for our sins. And second of all, that we get to go to heaven when we die. Now, both of those things are true, but I think both of them actually are are incomplete. Yes, Jesus did die for our sins, but he also rose again to new life. And yes, we get to go to heaven when we die, but even more importantly, we get to be resurrected. We get to be brought back to life physically with a body in a new heavens and new earth for all eternity. And so simply to say that Jesus died for our sins, it's true, but it's incomplete without the resurrection. And to say that we go to heaven when we die is great, but it also is incomplete because the promise, the central hope of Christianity is resurrection. It's a new creation where even the, the earth is, is resurrected and renewed and redeemed. It's not burned up. It's, it's not trashed and left behind. It's renewed and the heavens and the earth meet and become as one. And we live in the presence of God forever with perfect, imperishable bodies. Amen? That's the hope of Christianity. And so what I want to do this morning, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for about six months. This is sermon number 20. It's the last one. We've reached the end of the Gospel of Mark. And what I love is that we don't have to come up with some like clever ending, or we don't have to try to to work up this great finish to the story, but instead the story ends in such a beautiful and powerful way. It comes to its climax and its resolution with the resurrection of Jesus. And so what we're going to look at this morning is how we practice resurrection. To use the the phrase of the poet Wendell Berry, how do we practice resurrection? What does it look like to to live in a world in which Jesus has been raised? And so I want to look at three things, resurrection wonder, resurrection hope, and resurrection life. So we're going to look at those three things. But first I want to look at Mark 16, these eight verses that we just had read for us. I want to walk through these verses and, and their sort of strange and abrupt ending. I don't know if you notice how, how kind of abruptly the passage just end when Tristan read it, but it, it seems to like be a little bit incomplete, like we might expect something more to be there. And we'll get to that in a moment. But what Mark writes is that on Saturday evening, as the Sabbath ended, three women bought spices to perform the ceremonial anointing of Jesus' body. And then on Sunday morning, right at sunrise, they go to the tomb where Jesus had been buried. Now, what this was, was uh, Jesus' body had been placed in this uh, tomb that had never been used. It would have been a a cave where the entrance was cut out. Uh, It was large enough for a couple of bodies to be placed in there. And what this was is is a sort of first burial. So in that day and age, there was a first burial and a second burial. In the first burial, the body would be wrapped in cloths and, and there would be an anointing of oils and spices to preserve the body. And then it was placed in a, in a cave so that people might, might be able to come and visit and, and mourn and grieve. And so the cave was usually right on the edge of city limits. And then later on, there would be a second burial about a year or two later where the, the family would come and take the body and then they would bury it in the earth, typically uh, you know, far out from the city. And so Jesus has been taken down from the cross. He's been wrapped in cloths, but his body has not been anointed in the traditional way and he's been placed in this cave, this tomb. And so Sunday morning, the three women come with their spices and their oils, and to be sure, they are not expecting resurrection. 
Their question is, how do we get, there's a gnat up here, sorry. How do we, how do we get this, this big stone rolled back from the cave? Also, this cave was being guarded by two Roman soldiers, like they put the biggest and baddest dudes there to protect this cave because they don't want Jesus's body being stolen. Of course, they would find out that they might have some, some bigger problems. But it says in verse four, when the women arrived, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now it says in Matthew's gospel that an earthquake shook the ground and that an angel appeared and the guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men on the ground. The angel then rolled the stone back and sat on top of it, which you ask me is kind of baller that he like moved the stone, knocked out the guards and was just kind of sitting there like, all right, come on in ladies. I took care of it. You know, it's just like phenomenal. And Matthew says that the angel's appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. According to Luke's gospel, the angel asks this question, why do you look for the living among the dead? They're saying, why would you come to a tomb? Tombs are for dead people and there's no one dead here anymore. Back to Mark 16, the angel tells the women that Jesus is not here, he is risen. Go to Galilee where they were all from and Jesus will meet you there. And he specifically says the disciples and Peter. And I think that's because Peter has just denied Jesus three times. And so the angel wants to make sure that Peter is not, you know, removed from the group of the disciples. He will be restored, but, but tell the disciples and Peter, make sure Peter is not too crushed, but make sure he hears the good news. And then that's it. That's, that's the end of the gospel of Mark. It's, it's such a strange ending that we can be fairly sure that there probably were additional verses written in the original manuscript. It's not normal for Mark to be this abrupt in the way he writes. He's really good at drawing all these themes together. And so if you're looking in your pew Bible or if you have a Bible in front of you, there are often included two uh, additional endings, possible endings. One is just a verse long, one is 12 verses long, but they're always sort of put in brackets. And the reason for that is that they were not included in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. So I know we're like nerding out here a little bit on the you know, historical reliability stuff. But what's most likely is that Mark had written additional verses, but they had gotten you know, broken off from the page or they had been damaged or you know, his son ran into the room and knocked the coffee over or something like that. But we lost some of the verses that conclude Mark 16. And so the early church had a sense of what Mark had written, and from memory, they put it down in these 12 extra verses. But knowing that it wasn't word for word what Mark had written, they included it in brackets. And so there's nothing extraordinary in those 12 verses. There's nothing that's not included in the other three Gospels. But rather, we tend to just end it with verse 8, understanding that these are the verses that we know for certain that Mark has written. And so as it is, the emphasis is simply on Jesus' resurrection. 
It's simply on the fact that Jesus has risen, that he is alive, that he has returned to Galilee. And then we just see this sense of wonder. We see the, the, the sense of astonishment in these women. When they had no expectation that this would happen, and they are blown away and overwhelmed with joy that their friend, that their Lord had been risen from the dead. And so what does this resurrection mean for us? First, it means wonder. These resurrection passages are all full of wonder and astonishment, of of awe, a sense of awe in the presence of this resurrection. Mark's gospel describes the women with uh, four words, alarmed, trembling, bewildered, and afraid. I mean, this was absolutely overwhelming in the best possible way. And the word fear or, or afraid, it gets used also for the Roman guards. And it's sort of a play on words to show us there's, there's a type of fear, a type of being afraid that, that leads to, to trembling. You know, the, the guards just passed out. And then there's a, there's a type of fear that leads to worship and excitement and, and to wonder. And that's what the women experienced. And all the Gospels capture this sense of wonder around the resurrection. Luke's Gospel describes Jesus walking with with two people along the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. It says that they were walking and they were downcast and Jesus asked them what they were talking about. And they said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard? Jesus of Nazareth, he was killed. What's more, we thought, you know, he was a great teacher. He's a prophet. We we thought even he might be the Messiah, but we were wrong because he's dead and he's buried. And so they're going home. And Jesus, whose identity is, is hidden from them in that moment, he says, are, are you sure? What about the Old Testament? What about the scriptures? And it says that he laid out for them the law and prophets that pointed to him. So he might have described for them the story of of Abraham and Isaac and and the ram that was used as a sacrifice for the son, or maybe the Passover, the the firstborn lamb that had been slain and the blood was put on the doorpost so that the people might go free, or the prophecies of Isaiah that promised a Messiah who is also a suffering servant, and and by his wounds we are healed. And And it says that as Jesus opened up all these scriptures for them, their hearts burned within them. And when they reached their home, they wouldn't let Jesus go, but they brought him in for dinner. And it says, when Jesus gave thanks and broke the bread, immediately their eyes were open to who he was and he disappeared. I mean, the, the wonder and the astonishment and the awe, it's, it's everywhere in the resurrection narratives. Immediately it says these, these two individuals rushed back to Jerusalem to tell everybody what they had seen. In John's gospel, there's this beautiful little sort of snippet in John's gospel where he says that when they came into the tomb to find Jesus' body, his, his head wrapping, the, the cloths that would have been wrapped around his head, had been taken off and neatly folded and set on the bench where his body had been, which is just such a great little detail. And like, you just think about Jesus like sitting up being like, all right, Sunday morning. And he takes his head wrapping off and he's like, I better... I better leave this kind of nice, you know, like wrap it up. It's, it's, just, it's just such a beautiful little element of the story. It's almost like when, you're, when you come home and then you leave again, and so you leave a note like for your roommate or your spouse. It's like, hey, I went to get milk or, you know, gone for a bike ride, risen from the dead. Like here's the little, the head wrapping, it's right here. I'm not here, but I folded it for you. 
There's wonder in, in every description around the resurrection. Resurrection is what restores to us a sense of wonder in the world. Like I said, the resurrection makes sense to a child, but to us as adults, we have to, we have to wrestle with, can miracles really happen? This is outside the normal operation of things. And the disciples and the Jews said, you know, I don't, I don't know about this. Even the disciple uh, Thomas says, I, I need proof. I need to see the scars before I know that this is real. But the child just believes. The child still has the sense of wonder. And so the question is, how do we regain our sense of wonder as believers? The resurrection restores this to us because it restores to us the, the, the goodness of creation, the reality that the creation matters, that our body matters, this physical world matters. If Jesus was resurrected, if, if one day all things will be made new, it means that this world, this, this world matters. And so we can recapture our sense of wonder by, by slowing down and paying attention. You know, if you've ever been with a, with a child on a nature walk, it's, it's, for me, it's one of the most frustrating things because they just stop and look at everything, like every flower, every twig, every squirrel. It's like you can't even get anywhere without them stopping like every six feet. And it's because they still have their sense of wonder. It's because everything catches their eye, their imagination, and it's, and it's enchanting to them. In the same way, spiritually, we have to, we have to slow down and sort of regain the, the eyes of a child and look into the world, not with skepticism or, or cynicism, but with the eyes of faith to slow down and pay attention to what God is doing in the world, what he's done in history. Pay attention to the people that are around us, the wonder and beauty that are in each and every person. And so we slow down and, and pay attention, but we also embrace this resurrection this physical world that matters so much to God. And we cultivate wonder through prayer and, and reading in his word. I love the line in Psalm 119 that says, open my eyes, Lord, that I might see wondrous things in your law. It's such a good prayer for us. Every time we come to the scriptures, whether it's individually or whether it's in a church gathering, Lord, open my eyes that I might see wondrous things in your law. The scriptures, prayer, they help us regain this sense of wonder. So that's the first thing. The second thing is resurrection hope. Resurrection is what gives us hope. And hope is the, the forward-looking element of faith. So you have faith and then hope is that element of faith that's looking towards the future. It's, it's looking forward to God's promises in the future. And without the resurrection, the scriptures say we are hopeless. Apostle Paul wrote this to, to people who didn't know what difference the resurrection made in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I don't know if you've really thought about that. The fact that if Jesus wasn't physically resurrected, we would still be in our sins. You might say, well, couldn't it work for, you know, Jesus to just make the payment for our sins and then just kind of, just kind of go up into heaven in a disembodied sense? And Paul is saying, no, without the physical resurrection of Jesus, salvation is incomplete. 
And that's because he, he says in, in this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, that the final enemy of sin is death. And so unless Jesus has fully pushed back death and, and overturned the curse of death, then victory is incomplete. Unless Jesus has risen from the grave physically and in a perfected body, then our salvation too is incomplete. And so Paul continues in 1 Corinthians, he says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So in Christ, all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And I hope you can see and, and capture how beautiful and how important it is that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. I don't do a lot of farming myself personally. I have some close friends that are farmers, but you should, you have an idea of what the first fruits are, right? They're, they're those first berries or, or apples on the vine that say that, that the harvest is coming, you know, spring is coming. It could be the smallest little berry on, on the vine, but it tells you that winter is over, spring is here, and this entire crop is coming. It's, it's a certainty when you see that first one. So you celebrate not just because the first one is there, but because of what it represents that all the others are soon to follow. And Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is that first one to be resurrected and to be resurrected imperishable and, and infinite and eternal. And the coming harvest is all of us who believe. That good news that at the end of time, when Jesus returns, every one of us will be resurrected in the same way that Jesus was with an imperishable body, free from sin, free from brokenness, free from depression and anxiety and chronic pain and, and broken relationships, all the things we suffer from here on earth. All of that will be a distant memory. It says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. And it's not just that the resurrection bodies are, are the things that we most look forward to. We most look forward to the presence of God forever. And yet the resurrection body is, it's this physical expression of, of everything being made new again. It's this physical demonstration of all things being made right, being restored, being brought to perfection and wholeness. And so we can look at the hope of the resurrection body and say yes and amen, and come, Lord Jesus. The central hope of Christianity is resurrection. My hope and my, my prayer, our, our hope as a leadership team, is that if you spend you know, two or three years of this church at least, that you would leave with a, a robust understanding of the resurrection. With, with a huge view of the new creation. And for the rest of your life, understand the power and the hope that exists in the resurrection. That it's not just going to heaven in a disembodied sense, but it's rather heaven coming down to us, all things being made new. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there was an old pastor in the 17th century, Richard Baxter, and he had been put in, in prison for 20 years for speaking out against uh, sort of the, the religious traditions, the Anglo-Catholic, you know, uh, it was a mess back then. And so he, he spoke out against them. He does 20 years in prison as a pastor. And then when he gets out, what he began to teach is that every believer should spend 30 minutes a day thinking about eternity. That's remarkable. 30 minutes a day, just dwelling on eternity. What's it going to be like? What are we going to experience there? How do we see it in the scriptures? 
No, it's a great exercise. You know, there's, there's no temple in the new creation because there's no need to contain the presence of God. There's no need for any more sacrifices. There's no sun because the face of God brings all the light that we need for, for all of time. We're in the perfect presence of relationships with one another. I mean, absolute perfection. You think about this earth and how beautiful it is and some of the places that you've been in your life in this country or other countries and how magnificent and awe-inspiring they are. And to think this is a broken world. This is the corrupted version of it. What will it be like when it is completely made new? I mean, food is, is so good. Some of you are foodies and others of you like me just eat protein bars all day, but food completely renewed and redeemed. And of course, us and our relationships, wholeness, perfection, imperishable, resurrected bodies, perfect communion with Jesus and one another. That is our hope. It's life with God beyond the grave. But it's not just that. Here's the last thing. Resurrection, life. I mean, even if it was just that, that would be, would be enough. That would be phenomenal. But we have not only a hope for the future, but rather the resurrection gives us power for here and now. The resurrection changes absolutely everything. So it's not just hope beyond the grave, it's hope before the grave. There's an old hymn that says, no fear in life, no guilt, or, or no fear in death and no guilt in life. And that's our reality. We have nothing to fear in death and we have nothing to fear in this life. And that's because the resurrection says our eternal life has already begun. That's something we say here a lot at Trinity, but your eternal life has already begun. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die, but rather what Jesus is constantly teaching people is that when you are, are born again, his phrase from, from John 3, when you experience new birth and new life in Christ, your eternal life begins. Death is a sort of change in substance, but eternal life has already begun. We don't have our imperishable resurrected bodies, but Paul calls us new creations. We are already new creations. Eternal life has become. The resurrection was the first visible sign that God's victory has been won, and it's not an ending, but it's a new beginning. And the resurrection, it wasn't just a, a one-time event 2,000 years ago, but rather it's a power that is living and active. Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He will also give life to your mortal bodies through Him who lives in you. Isn't that incredible? The Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is now in you, empowering you and encouraging you in your eternal life that you're currently living. So Christianity then is not merely about going to heaven or saving souls for heaven, but rather starting eternal life here on earth, which is the power and encouragement for saving souls, for doing evangelism, for all of these things that we do on earth. But if God was only concerned with heaven, then what happens here on earth is of little value to him. Instead, if God loves us, if he cares about our world, he cares about our earth, and he cares about our bodies, then everything that's happening here and now matters to him so much. And so the resurrection gives us both things, the promise of the afterlife and the presence and power of God here and now, freedom and power for life.
if the point of human life is Jesus restoring all things to himself, turning back the curse of death, restoring what's broken, bringing wholeness and perfection to everything, then that means that we get to participate in it even now. That we get to work towards that end, that we get to to anticipate and enact that final day so that everything that exists in eternity is what we want to see happen here and now. If it's good enough for God for all time, then we ought to be working for it here and now. I used this quote from N.T. Wright a couple months ago, but I'm going to do it again without shame. He says, what you do in the present will last into God's future. You are, strange as it might seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself. You are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God, Every minute spent teaching a handicapped child to read or walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel and builds up the church and embraces holiness rather than corruption, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. The resurrection changes absolutely everything. And what we do on this earth, in this life, it matters for all eternity. And the hope of the Christian life, it's not just going to heaven. It's even better than that. It's the recreation of absolutely everything, the renewal of of all things. And that's what allows us to, to recover our sense of wonder in this world to embrace embrace our our belovedness in God. That's not about how we we clean ourselves up for God or or we do good things to get noticed by God or we we get our act together so that he might save us. I mean, this is, we're talking like dead coming back to life. It's on a totally different level. There's nothing you can do to make yourself more presentable to God. Instead, he sees you through his son, Christ. He sees the perfection of Christ. Christ. And that's the basis of his love for you if you believe in him. It's not your righteousness. It's not your good deeds. It's not your your perfect record before him, but it's Christ's perfect record. And if that's the basis for God's love for you, then you can know that it is sure and it is eternal and it will never change. So this resurrection, it gives us hope for the future, but it also gives us power for here and now. And you can know that right where God has placed you, Acts 4 says this, that God has has placed man in the exact places and times where they are. And so you can know that God has placed you exactly where you are. I mean, in this town, in your neighborhood, in your job, surrounded by your very neighbors and your very coworkers and family members and friends, in the very circumstances of life that you find yourself in, God has placed you in that exact space so that you might bring eternity to bear there. So that you might be a witness to the resurrection and the new creation even there. You're in the one spot where nobody else can be but you and God has placed you there sovereignly so that you might witness to his love and mercy in that place. This is the message of the resurrection that Jesus has risen. That that power of God is now living and active in the church, in each one of us. And that together we get to participate in, enact the renewal of the whole world.
God's power is in you for the good of others, for the glory of his name. Jesus is risen and one day we will rise as well. Let's pray.